Whatever floats your boat is a common phrase in the English language. But what does float your boat? If you're in a kayak or a sailboat, why does it stay on the surface rather than sink? Well, it's because of a little bit of physics called buoyancy, which, in my opinion, is one of the hardest words ever to spell, so it's a good thing we're only speaking it. Hi, I'm Kate Harubi, and this is Go Forth in Science podcast, where we combine adventure and science into a tale that will hopefully make the next time you step outside even better. There are three main parts to buoyancy. Gravity, density of the water, and the amount of water that is pushed away by the object. But what really is density? And if everything interacting with the water has these three factors, and therefore is buoyant, why do some things still sink? To answer these questions, we're going to turn to my best friend and buoyancy extraordinaire, Kelly. Kelly, how about qualifications that you have to talk about buoyancy? Qualifications. Um, Well, I happen to be buoyant. I float pretty well, so I feel pretty good talking about it. I also work on things that float, or we hope they continue to float, which is boats. I am a professional mariner. I am a captain sometimes. Mostly I work on educational sailboats, but I've also worked on my fair share of motor vessels, and I currently teach a high school maritime course at the Seattle Maritime Academy. So what is buoyancy? Buoyancy is the ability for things to float, and it refers to things in liquid as well as air. So like when you think of buoyancy, we tend to think, or at least I tend to think of things floating in water because that's my area of expertise, but it could also refer to things like balloons. Balloons float, and so therefore they are buoyant. Why do super heavy boats float like tanker ships and concrete boats? That is a great question, and that's kind of the essential question that we have to think about as mariners all the time. So super heavy boats can float because of the principle of density. Everything has some form of density, and density, if we want to think about it as an equation, is mass over volume. And the way that I always teach people to remember that is that I love density and you love density too, even if you don't know it. So if you were to take a heart for love and divide it in half. So if you drew a heart on a piece of paper and then drew a line horizontally through the middle of it, you get the equation for density. It creates an M over a V. And that is an easy, easy way to always remember the equation for density, which who knows could come in handy someday. It certainly comes in handy for the students who want to pass my class. (laughs) So density, mass over volume, is what we are going to be talking about when we talk about buoyancy. Water has a density of one, which makes things really simple. So in order for anything to float on water, it has to have a density of less than one. So what that means for things like really heavy boats made of steel and carrying lots of cargo is that their mass as it increases, they have to continuously increase the volume. So as long as the ratio stays consistent of the mass being less than the volume, the ship can float. So if you think about it, boats are just an outer shell that hold a lot of air inside. And really, that outer shell could be made of anything, no matter the density, as long as it pushes enough of that water away, aka has a large enough volume, to keep it floating. We also do have to think about things in ship design, like, for example, if you think of a container ship, if it flips upside down, it's going to start losing the ability to float. But yeah, so long as we can maintain the ratio and keep things in a density of less than one, they can float on water. Not all water though. Ooh, what do you mean? So yeah, the density of water can change depending on its temperature and what type of water it is. So when we refer to water having a density of one, we're referring to fresh water at about room temperature. But as it gets hotter or colder, the density is gonna change. Hot water is less dense than cold water. 
And additionally, salt water is more dense than fresh water. So that's why it's necessary for ships to really consider what kind of water they're going to be on. So if they're going to be on a freshwater lake or the ocean, what climate they're in. The water's going to have a different density in the Arctic as it will at the equator. And that can get pretty tricky if you are a cargo ship concerned about your density. But most of the time, any boat can go anywhere. And the way that we make sure that they're maintaining safety and maintaining the correct density when they go to different places are things called load lines and a limsel mark. So load lines are these markings on the side of ships, and there's different markings for different climates and temperatures. So most cargo ships are going to have lines for tropical freshwater, freshwater, tropical seawater, summer seawater, winter seawater, and winter North Atlantic, because that is one of the saltiest places. What? That's so cool! Anybody who's walking around down on the beach or by the water or near a port, you see all the little lines on the sides of the tanker ships, now you know what they're for. Yeah, and the other one that you can look for is the plimsoll mark, which is the overall load line that people can keep an eye on for the general safety of the vessel in any climate. And that is going to be just a simple circle with a horizontal line through it. Kind of looks like the sign for the London tube. And that is the highest point that a ship can be loaded to. So when that line starts approaching the water line, then you know that that ship has reached its load limit. Just a vocab tidbit here. The water line on a boat is literally where the surface of the water touches the side of the boat and it can change depending on how much weight is in the boat. If you've ever sat in a canoe by yourself, and then sat in a canoe with a few of your friends, you'll have noticed that the canoe hangs out lower in the water with more weight, which means the water line on the side of the canoe will be higher. And the Plimsoll line was actually invented by a gentleman, Mr. Plimsoll, and there is a day to celebrate him. There is Plimsoll Day. I forget off the top of my head exactly what day it is, but it celebrates it because this very simple invention of just putting a mark on the side of the ship that is the highest point the ship can be loaded to allowed a lot of sailors to work safely on these vessels because buoyancy is really hard to calculate. So having these marks allowed them to know that they weren't going to make a mistake and overload the ship and then get into trouble out at sea. I'll look up what day it is and add it into this podcast and then we can all celebrate it every year. (laughs) Yes, excellent. (laughs) Plimsoll Day is celebrated on February 10th each year, which was the birthday of Plimsoll the person. So forget about Valentine's Day. We have an even better holiday to celebrate for the first half of February. What happens when a ship's density is also equal to one? If anything's density is equal to one, it becomes neutrally buoyant. When we talk about buoyancy, we tend to focus on positive buoyancy. We're being very positive about the situation because we like it when things float for the most part, especially if we're sailing them across oceans. And so positive buoyancy is when an object has a density of less than one, it can float. If an object has a density of more than one, it sinks. But if an object has a density of one or a density equal to the water, whatever water it is in, then it is going to float in the middle. So it's not gonna float on the surface. And this is not great for say a cargo ship, but it is good for some things. Things that are neutrally buoyant are, for example, a submarine can achieve neutral buoyancy. It can also achieve positive buoyancy when it wants to come up, they have control over their buoyancy. But when they are underwater, they want to achieve some form of neutral buoyancy so that they can scoot through the middle of the water column and not be on the bottom or on the surface. Other things that use neutral buoyancy to their advantage are plankton. Plankton are these little micro or macro organisms that make up the bulk of life in our oceans. And a lot of them achieve neutral buoyancy so that they can float in the water column. Some of them are photosynthetic, so they want to be close to the surface in order to take advantage of the sun's light. But they don't want to float directly on the surface because all that surface disturbance could cause them some trouble. So they want to be neutrally buoyant and float somewhere just below. 
A lot of other sea creatures can also be neutrally buoyant, similar to the way a submarine can. Fish have a thing called a swim bladder inside them, which is basically just an internal balloon they can inflate and deflate. This helps them hang out at specific depths in the water without having to constantly swim around. Do you know any famous stories where buoyancy was disrupted? Uh, yes. So one of the famous stories in the tall ship world, or the sailing world, is the ship the Vasa. Vasa was a Swedish warship that was built between 1626 to 1628. It took about two years to build them. It was a huge ship commissioned by the King of Sweden. And as the Vasa was being built, the folks in charge kept wanting to add things onto it. So they had the design of the ship, and then after the design phase, as the ship was already being built, they requested more things, like more gun decks and more gold so that they could show how awesome they were. And they just continuously added things to the ship, despite the protestations of the people who were building and designing the ship. When the Vasa was launched, it was built on land and then launched into the water, as most ships are. And the day that it was launched, it sailed out into the water, turned on its side, and sank immediately. <laughs> so that was the <laughs> ultimate test of a failure of buoyancy. They added so many things onto the ship post-design phase that it was no longer buoyant. It had a density of more than one, and it just immediately rolled over and sank to the bottom. Now, what's really cool is that in the past decade or so, some folks up in Sweden have raised the wreck of the Vasa, and it's actually sitting in a museum now, and they've been piecing it back together. You can go and see the Vasa, and it's a ship that never sailed, but you can go and see it. That's so cool. I'm surprised that it took them this long to raise it, because I feel like with the amount of gold that was on it, it was probably a pretty good shipwreck to excavate. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if people went down and stripped gold off of it over time. Also with shipwrecks, there are a lot of laws about who the wreck belongs to. So it could be that they ordered that even though it was at the bottom of the sea, that gold still belonged to the king. Although I'm sure there are people who chose to ignore that rule if they could get their hands on some beautiful gilded gold ship. Over the few decades after the Vasa claimed her new home on the bottom of the ocean, there were attempts to raise her up again, but she wasn't budging. So people instead went down and grabbed her cannons, which were expensive and could be brought to the surface. After that, she was left to the sea until 1956, when she was rediscovered in remarkably good condition. Over 98% of the original ship still exists today, including her masts and sails. Her long trip to museum land started in 1959. In order to change her buoyancy and bring her to the surface, people suggested things like filling her with golf balls or freezing her in a block of ice. But in the end, they just threaded cables underneath her and hauled her into shallower water. In 1962, she was ready for the public eye, and people could come watch the preservation team do their work as they attempted to make a boat that had been waterlogged for over 300 years, able to exist on dry land. That feat took a couple more decades, but now you can visit the ship in her very own museum. Do you have any personal buoyancy stories? I do have a personal buoyancy story. I was like, you know, I've never been on a boat that was like significantly sinking, except for that one time. <laughs> <laughs> I have my own sailboat. She is a little yellow sailboat, a San Juan 24, who we affectionately refer to as Little Cheesecake because she looks like a little slice of cheesecake. <laughs> And when I bought the boat, I wanted to be able to explore the San Juan Islands. And the thing with my boat is she's got about a five foot draft and draft is the distance that a boat goes underwater. So from the water line down to the bottom of the boat, that is the draft. She's got a five foot draft and that's great for the San Juan Islands because the depths there tend to be pretty deep. 
However, I can't bring my boat right up to shore. And so I needed a smaller boat for my boat in order to actually get to beaches and go explore the islands. And I had spent pretty much all of my budget on buying the boat and I didn't have a lot left over for a second boat. So I went to Fred Meyer and bought the cheapest version of a boat they had, which was essentially a inflatable pool toy rowboat that claimed it could fit two people. So we went up to the San Juan Islands and while we were there, I picked Kate up and took her for a little day sail. And we decided we wanted to explore this one island. Well, we anchored Little Cheesecake and start to prepare our small boat to go ashore, inflated it, loaded into it. I got into the boat and as soon as I got into this $40 inflatable pool toy, it started to take on a little bit of water. Now, one thing about boats is when you take water onto a vessel, when water gets into the vessel, it starts to change the mass of that vessel. And so, as you can imagine, it's going to be changing the density. When I got in, a little bit of water started to get into the vessel as well. And I thought, hmm, keep an eye on that. And then I encouraged Kate to get into the little boat with me. <laughs> well, she was a good sport and she got on with me. <laughs> As soon as Kate got into the vessel, started to take on more water. <laughs> Turns out it was not the most seaworthy small boat that we could have gone with. We did manage to paddle it almost all the way to shore. Then we noticed there were lots of large rocks that looked like they could eat our small boat up. And it was a little bit of a wavy day. And so landing might not have been the best idea. And so instead of trying to land our pool craft onto the beach, we chose to come back. And by the time we got back to the boat, I think we were just in danger of being over that line of having a density of more than one. The only thing that saved us from sinking was getting back to Little Cheesecake. We were definitely sitting in a puddle of water by the time we got back to Little Cheesecake. We might've even been neutrally buoyant at that point. (laughs) (laughs) We were essentially plankton. Yes, but we did make it. The boat did not actually overturn or sink. Yeah, you know, it did It did its job as far as kept us above water for long enough that it had to. So I would say I got my $40 worth. I think you did, yes. Do you want to tell the listeners what the boat is called? Because I feel like this is also a pertinent part of this story. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Lil Cheesecake's small boat's name is Renona Wider. Sorry, Winona Ryder, if you are offended by me naming a pool toy after you, but it just really came out to be the most perfect pun. Yes, and I think on that day, we probably would have appreciated it if she was a little wider. (laughs) If she rode a little better. (laughs) Yeah, we did cycle through trying to use the paddles, like canoe paddles and then kayak paddles, and then we kind of just ended up using our hands by the end. (laughs) I'd like to say to all the listeners that we were wearing life vests. We were, yes. How do humans fall on the buoyancy scale? You know, it really depends on the human. Everybody's got different BMIs, body mass indexes, and so we've all got slightly different densities. Some people can float really easily, and some people sink like a rock. (laughs) I've seen this. Uh, I was a lifeguard for many years, and I would do swim tests for kids at a camp up in Maine, and lots of kids, when they jump in the water, can float to the surface, no problem. Treading water obviously helps, so if you're ever in water, stay calm and tread, and you will maintain positive buoyancy but some people just naturally sink like a stone. (laughs) But there's some fun places that you can go in the world where pretty much everybody is buoyant. You may have heard of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is particularly salty, which means that it has a really high density. The Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because it's so salty that almost nothing can live in it. This watery basin is actually a lake existing at the lowest point on Earth. 
It's the end of a river, so when all the river water flows into the lake, it has nowhere to go but up. The water evaporates in the sun and leaves behind all the salt and minerals, causing the water to be almost 10 times saltier than the ocean. So you can float a lot more easily, and there's some famous stories of the people who live in the Dead Sea reading their morning newspaper while floating on their backs. I have always wanted to go swim in the Dead Sea pretty much for that reason. (laughs) Yep, me too. We could bring Renona wider. Yes, and then she would float better. (laughs) It's all about finding the right habitat for your boat. (laughs) (laughs) What can people do to learn about buoyancy in their own homes? Yeah, since we're all home right now and not all of us have access to boats on the water, we can still learn about buoyancy in our home using some everyday objects. So I've got two activities for you to try in order to test your knowledge of buoyancy. The first one, you're going to need a container full of water. A plugged up sink will work just fine. Some tin foil and some heavy objects. Things like nuts and bolts work particularly well for this. Small stones, marbles, anything like that. And you can also get competitive with this one. So the goal of the first activity is to create a vessel, a boat, out of tin foil, and then float it in your water, and then continuously add objects until your boat sinks. And you're going to see how much cargo the ship you designed can handle. And you're going to want to remember some of these buoyancy principles that we've talked about, hint, high, volume, pull. And then you, and if you want to, somebody else in your household can see who can create a boat with equal size pieces of tinfoil that holds the most objects, the most cargo. The second activity that you can enjoy, you're going to want, a, and again, a container that can hold water. This time, it'd be helpful to have a clear container so you can see through the sides. And you're going to want to have some depth to it, so like six inches to a foot at least. And you're going to want to find an object in your house that has positive buoyancy an object that has negative buoyancy, and then the tricky one is an object that has neutral buoyancy. So you're gonna wanna find something that will float on the surface of the water, no problem. An object that sinks, that one should be pretty easy for you to work out. And then an object that is neutrally buoyant. And if you can't find an object in your house that is neutrally buoyant, you can create one. Some fun materials that I like to use to create neutrally buoyant objects are sponges cut up into small pieces. Rubber bands help hold everything together. Pipe cleaners can help with this. Pretty much any crafty materials that you've got lying around, you can try to find and create something that will maintain neutral buoyancy. I might go do that right after this. (laughs) Okay, so I did try this and I ended up using a sponge, a penny, and a rubber band. It took me 8 minutes and 37 seconds to build this neutrally buoyant object, and I challenge you all to make one faster than that. I will warn you that the sponge's buoyancy changes as it takes on more water, much like a boat, so while you might have a neutrally buoyant object for a bit, it might not stay that way through multiple trials. Do you want to plug your social media account? Yeah, if you want to learn more about general boat stuff, I do have an Instagram account that's just started up called Captain Professor, Captain underscore Professor. It's just a fun way for me to give some small lessons on a large subject in a weird time. Great. Well, thank you for coming on and talking about buoyancy, Kelly. You're so welcome. It was really fun. And now for our episode recap. Buoyancy is gravity times the density of the water times the underwater volume of an object. And as we talked about, the density of the water can change depending on its temperature or saltiness, so the amount of force that is pushing on a floating object changes too. When crossing oceans, tanker ships plan for this by having specific lines on their hulls that tell them when to be concerned about their stability in the water. 
but objects can float in the water in the first place if their own density is less than that of the water. That ensures that the buoyancy will push it up to the surface. If an object has a greater density than water, it will sink. And if the object has the same density as the water, then it is neutrally buoyant and can glide around wherever it wants. Submarines and fish do this by regulating the amount of air they have in their system, effectively changing their overall density to be the same as the water. And when you have a super heavy object, like a giant metal boat, it's actually able to float because of its size, which is a bit counterintuitive, but think of all the air inside the boat as part of the density. Even if the size of the boat on their own might sink, those sides and the air inside them are pushing against the water with a large enough volume to counteract the boat's mass. So thanks, buoyancy, for everything from the plankton in the ocean to the canoes and kayaks I use to explore coastlines and lakes. Thanks for the years I've spent as an educator on sailboats, and thank you for supporting Renona Wider long enough to get us back to Little Cheesecake. And to combat any nostalgia you might have right now for boating or swimming in waters across the world, I encourage you to try out Kelly's buoyancy experiments at home. It may not be a sailboat, but you'll probably get about as wet playing around with buoyancy on your kitchen counter as you would if you were out on the water. For more information about the Vasa, you can visit the museum's website, which is where I got all the fun facts about her recovery. The link to that site will be on my webpage, www.goforthinscience.com resources.